Hello, my name is John Lovering and I am the host of Audio Theatre, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. From Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, but he says, says, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My dad said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says, I love you, more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love. Ending with, I love you. I love you. Thank you. We've asked all of our storytellers to only tell a story that they were actually a part of because we believe that the feeling and passion that comes from living the experience oneself is really captured best when it's something a person was a part of. We have David Balkan a resident of Kittery Point for 30 years who moved to Bar Harbor, Maine three years ago. David, a big fan of what's coming up next, will tell his story, Angel's Tale, and Steve Martin. Hello, everybody. Big crowd here. Amazing. In the radio program that I had, I always pretended nobody was listening and it worked. But here I can see that you people have ears and you're probably listening, so I don't know about this. Anyway. The year is 1973, that's 41 years ago, I believe, and I moved from Boston to Coconut Grove, Florida. 
and I'm five years into my trip to Coconut Grove. I was sick of winter, you know, and you can't imagine how charming it is at night, the night blooming jasmine, the smell of the grove, and all the stuff going on. It just just an amazing place. I had a Dade County Pine Cottage. If you don't know what Dade Pine, County Pine is, it's a very hard pine and very desirable, and it's obviously all gone now. Well, that cottage got bulldozed, and 16 condos are now in that place. And that was just the tip of an iceberg, if you'll pardon the metaphor, mixed metaphor, uh, because the whole grove changed character completely. Uh, after I moved, I became a partner in a bicycle shop. And if you don't know about bicycle shops, they're almost a community service because poor people ride bicycles. Now rich people do too, but back then only poor people rode them. It was, a, it was kind of a just very basic transportation for those who couldn't afford a car. And you do a lot of work for free. And it really isn't much work to do to turn a screw or to do something because it's a lifetime of experience and it's a real tangible benefit of being, because everybody smiles. And, you know, you're doing something nice for people. I rode the bike every day. I rode thousands of miles to nowhere over the 10 years I lived in the Grove. It was just the most wonderful experience. Got me really in great shape. I wound up I could eat anything I wanted and never gain any weight. Can't do that now. Uh, <coughs> And bike shops, everybody hangs out at a bike shop, not everybody, but it, it's a center of community activity. When people wanted their toaster fixed, they'd come to the bike shop. Can you do something with this? And, you know, we try. Why not? doesn't cost any extra. And the Grove had a lot of stars in the wintertime that would come and perform. And they would come to the bike shop. Mickey Rooney would come to the bike shop. Dave Crosby came into the bike shop. I could drop a lot of names. A lot of guys lived in the Grove who were friends of the my partner, John Sebastian, uh, the guy that wrote the theme to Midnight Cowboy, uh, Fred Neal. He's passed, but a great guy. And it was just fun hanging around these people and talking to them, and they were just, like everybody else, you know, real people. Well, there was a nightclub across the street. There were nightclubs everywhere. And there was a nightclub across the street named Bubba's, and a guy, a friend of mine named Ron, just had bought the club, and he's really a worried man because he's decided to turn it into a comedy club. problem with comedy is you've got to make people laugh. And it's an immediate response. I mean, people can sing off key in everybody's plight, and they'll give you a round of applause afterwards. But if they're not laughing, comedians die on stage. So these guys are dead serious. He's putting up posters for a new act that he has coming into town. He's got his big star that he's booked, and I don't know what he's paying him is Robert Klein. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not, but he was a big star. And But the weekend before, he has this guy coming in. He's paying him $5,000. That's what he tells me. For four shows, that's a lot of money, I thought. And two nights. And the guy's name is Steve Martin. And he doesn't know anything about Steve Martin. Nobody knows anything about Steve Martin. And he says to me, you know, he comes over the day that Martin's about to perform, m the afternoon, and he says, the guy's driving me crazy. <laughs> he's, he's sitting in the club. I got setup work to do. I got this to do. I got that to do. Can you come over and just talk to him, listen to him? He just needs somebody. So I said, sure. What a friend's for, right? So I go over there, and Steve's sitting at the bar, and he's drinking water. Best drink on earth is what he said. And 
I welcome them to the Grove, and I tell them, you know, if you want a rental bike, you can, I'll, I'll give you one. You can have it for the couple of days you're here, and I tell them, you know, where you can ride. I give them a map, and he said, that's a great idea. Maybe I'll do that. So I asked him about his travels, and he begins, and he's telling me about being on the thing, and if I'd known he was going to be famous, I probably would have listened a little more closely, but the guy's got an enormous amount of energy, and he is just going on and on and on and on, and his voice is going up and down, and he's really quite agitated. And he finally apologizes for venting because he's talking about some of the dumps that he performed in. And just, you know, he's just at the end of his rope, it seems. And, you know, and, I, and he asked me, what's life like in Miami? And I tell him, well, I'm from New England, and I've never seen anything like it here. First of all, the weather's better. And, you know, but there's a, people are here today and gone today. I mean, you know, it's not like New England. They, they bulldoze places. And that's shocking because in New England we build everything, we rebuild things. And we're talking, you know, and I just tell him, you know, it's a great place and I've never seen so many drugs. I mean, back then the drugs were not as mainstream as they are today, I think. Or maybe they were, I don't know. And I asked him, you know, what do you do? <laughs> and he said, oh, no, 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 no. I see all of that on the road. All these guys are doing that stuff and I want no part of it. And again, he holds up his water and says, that's the best drink on earth. So, he tells me he's struggling to break through, he's tired of being broke, he lives in fear that he will never, ever make enough money to be the person that he wants to be. And he asked me about me, and I said, well, I got enough money. I, you know, I had a big job, and I quit it at the age of 30 because I just didn't want to live in the corporate world anymore. But I, I, I was far enough away from the corporate world and the suits that I used to have and, and deal with to see this man was really incredibly intense and incredibly focused, unlike most of the comedians that I had met who were really scared. A guy named uh, Uncle Dirty wasn't very dirty and he wasn't very funny. And he would always ask, am I funny? Am I funny? Or a guy, a, a guy named Ron, I don't know his last name, was an Armenian comedian and that was a big deal because he told me Armenians aren't funny. Well, <laughs> and, and Ron's stick was split personality. And to prove it, he was the most hirsute guy you'd ever want to see. He had thick black hair, thick black beard, hairy arms on one side of his body. The other side he had shaved completely clean. <laughs> well... My fellow merchants from across the street, because I go, I like Ron, he's just a good guy, and I'd walk over to the thing and buy him a cup of coffee or something, and they'd say, please don't bring him in here, he's really bad for business. <laughs> and people would actually cross the street when they saw us walking. I mean, he, you know, the guy, yeah, yeah that was his shtick. So I'm talking to Steve, and, I, and, and he starts, and all of a sudden, his biggest concern of all, biggest concern, are his two white suits. He has two white suits. That's part of his act. And he's really afraid they're not going to last till the end of the tour, which he's got two more dates after that one, I think. And he says the dry cleaners, and he goes into this story about dry cleaners are villainous. They ruin the suits. They don't know how it, they don't know anything. They don't know what they're doing, and yada, yada, yada. And they cost a bloody fortune. They were $1,000 a, a piece. And his voice went about five octaves up when he said that because he just, I just don't have any more money to buy another suit, and I need, I need a suit. So I have enough of that, 
I tell him, you know, I hear he's really funny, and, and I, since I read some reviews somewhere, and, you know, nobody mentioned anything about a white suit, so, you know, what's the problem? And I, and he says to me, you know, being funny is only half the battle. And then he goes in and tells me of all the really talented, smart, capable people that he knows in California who haven't made it, a pump and gas or whatever the song is, and just he's just really concerned that he's going to be one of those people. Well, it turns out that the first show is sold out. That's the only show that's sold out. And Ron's telling me that if he's funny, you know, then the other shows will sell out. The club only holds 90 people. And 15 bucks is the ticket. If Steve's paying that kind of money, Ron's got to sell a lot of cheap beer to, you know, to make his nut. So, the first show, I go to the first show, and Steve gets up on stage, and he looks around, just like I'm looking around at all you folks. And uh, there is an audience here, by the way, for those folks on the radio who are listening. And doesn't say anything. He just stands there for a second. So the audience starts to titter a little bit, like, you know, whatever. He's wearing this white suit, which, by the way, looks perfectly white. <laughs> you know, looks pristine from a distance. And he looks like he wants to ask a question, you know, like, are you listening? Are you listening? Or, you know, what? he just wants to get some feedback. And he goes over and he picks up a banjo and he starts to play the thing. And, I mean, he can really play a banjo, as we all know now. And I'm listening to that and thinking, my God, this guy doesn't have to be funny. All he's got to do is play the banjo for an hour. And he's, you know, he's amazing. He stops the banjo playing, puts an arrow through his head, and he says, I am a wild and crazy guy. <laughs> well, n nobody has seen that before. I mean, none of us. It's like comedy from another universe. Because everything that he did had never been seen before. And it wasn't like now where you know what you're going to see. Uh, so it was just totally startling, among anything else, and it hurt so much to be in that audience because you just could not stop laughing. Every every character that he ever developed on Saturday Night Live came alive on that stage, including he had a new one called the Conehead, <laughs> and he did that. And it, it, sides ached. It was just it was just incredible. So it's ninety minute show, and he's going all this thing. And I want to tell you that I, I have never been in so much pain. And all of a sudden he stops because there's a country club, a music club next door. And they got a band, and it kicks in about whenever it kicks in. And you, the walls are thin, and you can hear it. I mean, and he stops, turns around, walks over to the wall, bangs on the wall, gets nothing. Plays the banjo against the wall, gets nothing. And he turns around, he looks at shrugs his shoulders and goes, you know, don't walks off the stage, goes out the front door, walks next door to the club, and in a minute or two you hear him doing the rest of his act through the wall. <laughs> well, it was I you know I I always heard the expression rolling in the aisles. Well, I never knew that people did that, but I did, and it actually alleviates pain because it, it was just just too funny to believe. So. On the way back from the club, he could have been the Pied Piper drum major. They, he's got everybody from that club has followed him around, and they can't get in, so there's a big plate glass window, so they're at the window, and they got their noses pressed, and Steve comes back up on stage, and he does the rest of his act, and just amazing. 
Well, the next morning I drop by and I tell him, you're the funniest man alive. you got to know that. I mean, you looked at that. You heard that audience. You know what, you know. You, and he kind of agrees with that. You know, he, you know he's, he's, he's not completely stupid, as we all know. And, and then he says, you know, but my suits are going to fall apart. And I said, well, you know, you're not Linus. You don't need those suits. You could be funny with anything. And he, he tells, then he goes into this, this thing where he visits, in every town he visits the dry cleaning establishment. And he sounds out these people because he, the suits need cleaning upon occasion. And that's why, and then he goes into this absolutely hilarious rant about dry cleaners being murderers and rapists and every other low crime committed to, that's what dry cleaners are famous for, not dry cleaning. And I tell him that, and he went to the dry cleaner in our town, and I, and I said, well, you must have gone to the wrong one because there is a great guy, his name is Angel, and he's right down the street, and you really ought to go see him. And Steve goes, well, yeah, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, what do you got to lose? And Angel is really a special person. He uh, came to Miami in 1959 before capital actually took power but had been established. His family had an auto parts business. They, he got out before he got killed is what he said. You know, just that he just knew his handwriting was on the wall. And he worked for two years in Miami as a laborer and figured out that laundry never goes away. So that was the business that he was going to be in. And he opened up a laundry, the Coconut Grove Laundry, still there. His son runs it now. And Angel was just a gentleman. When I brought my fiancé in to meet him, and I said, no more laundry. Angel, he said, I hope I never see your laundry again. That was his. And he sent us a wedding present. Yeah, just a, a sweet, sweet guy. So Steve goes to see Angel, and that's the last I hear of it. And I drop by the club when I see him the next day. He, before the next show, the second night, he calls me over and he just thanks me up and down heartily. He said, I finally met a dry cleaner who knows what he's doing. And I saw, well, I said, well, then repeat after me. Angel is not a murderer. He is not a rapist. And Steve was laughing. He said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's not a murderer. He's not a rapist. And he really does know what he's doing. And yada, yada. And we have no, yeah. And he said, I would really love to have Angel clean my suits. I said, but I'm leaving town. I said, well, leave the suit with me and I'll get, I'll send it to your next thing. Angel will do it right away for you. And he thinks about it and he goes, you know, I just can't do that. Nothing personal. I just can't do that. So Steve leaves town, and that's the end of the story, except this was this story came upon me when I was in a writing group and I was asked to write a story or tell a story that nobody should ever forget. I take that kind of thing kind of seriously. And just meeting a famous person is pretty forgettable because, frankly, they're a dime a dozen or a million dollars a dozen, as you prefer. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, I'm go to the laundry, and I'm picking up something, and Angel calls me over, and he takes me aside, and I won't try to imitate Angel's accent, for which you're all very lucky. Uh, and he says, you know that crazy friend of yours? And I immediately say, hey, <laughs> no friend of mine. I live in this town. He's no friend of mine. And he goes, no, you know that crazy friend of yours? He's not listening to me at all. And he said, I've never met anybody like him. I've never seen anybody like him. Uh... I've been doing this now for 10 years, 11 years. I studied it. I go to school. I get the latest equipment. I know, you know, I, I really 
take pride in what I do. And he said, you know, that crazy friend of yours, that crazy friend of yours, that crazy guy, he knows more about dry cleaning than I do. <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. That's still not what it is. And I don't know if I should tell this part because it's kind of sad, but what's really unforgettable is if you ever visit Miami, any of you folks here or anybody listening, there's one rule you really have to remember. If you're at a traffic light and you're at the first car, when the light turned green, you have to look both ways. If you don't look both ways, people run red lights there all the time. Angel knew this. Everybody knows that. That's just There were dozens of accidents like that over the course of the year. Well, Angel was in an intersection in Coral Gables, pulled out from a light, and got hit by somebody doing 85 miles an hour running a red light, and he got killed. That's what you shouldn't forget. That's the story. And I am actually going to introduce our next storyteller because she is also our MC, switching hats here. So um, Pat Spaulding is going to tell our next story. Her story tonight is titled Dealing. Here's Pat. I want to say that this is a true story. It's a little exaggerated in some parts, but basically it's true. The parts that are exaggerated are true to my imagination. <laughs> Making decisions is grueling for me. I overthink them. It took me 40 years to decide to get married. But making that one big decision made the smaller ones that followed a lot easier. Like, what do you want for dinner? Want to go out? Should we go to Nebraska for Christmas again this year? Mostly I could answer, I don't care. You decide. Easy. Now I'm single again, back to weighing all my options, evaluating the pros and cons of everything, and overthinking every single decision I have to make. Not least among them, hmm, is that guy dateable? Matt looked like Nicolas Cage, especially from the back. His broad shoulders and tall, lanky frame moved with the grace of a basketball player who could do the samba. Following Matt around fed my fantasies. It made me feel like dancing. And I wish we could have kept it right there, at least for a little while longer. But it's hard to maintain that proximity distance thing. Before I knew it, we were spending too much quality time together. One thing led to another, and now Matt wanted to talk. Talk? Talk about what? I wasn't ready. Usually it's the woman who wants to talk and the guy who isn't ready. But this wasn't the case with Matt. He wanted to talk. I wasn't ready, but he asked. So I sat down to talk. Pat, on a scale of 1 to 10, can you tell me how this experience matches up with the others? 1 to 10? Yeah, you know, 10 being the highest. Yeah, I know what you mean, Matt. I know what you're talking about, Matt. I just don't think I can put this into a numerical category. I'm trying to make this easier for you, Pat, not harder. I'm trying to make it better. Right. Well, um, uh, seven? 
Are you asking me or telling me? I'm telling you. Seven. Is that all? Oh, come on, Matt. Seven's actually pretty good. I mean, it's a couple of numbers above a five, and that's the midway point, and seven is pushing an eight. Well, why don't we just call it an eight? No, no, you said seven. It's a seven. All right. So how can I make it a ten? Oh, geez, Matt. It's not like this is all up to you. I mean, isn't this conversation supposed to be about me and what I want? Of course it's about you and what you want. That's why I'm asking you. How can I make it a 10 for you? Uh, uh, speak to me. I'm thinking. I'm trying. Um, all right, all right, forget it, forget it. Forget the numbers. We'll start again. Just tell me what you want. What? exactly what it is I want. For years, I haven't been asked to make a decision about this. I've just, you know, gone with what's been available to me. Want? Well, I guess I just want it to feel right, you know, to be the right fit. And I want it to be the right fit for you. So, tell me, what are you looking for? Uh, I'm just looking for the feeling of knowing that this is what I want. You are not making this easy for me. I know. You think this is easy for me? You know, Matt, maybe I'm just not ready for this conversation. Maybe I need a little more time. I can give you time, Pat, if you can give me a better idea of what it is you want. Okay. Okay. I want to be delighted. I want the feeling of knowing, yes, this is it. I want Eureka. I found it. You want it to be a 10. Yes, I want it to be a 10. And so far, we're dealing with a seven. Seven and a half? Matt, please, can we just stop this? I mean... I've got to go. I, I've, I've, I've got to go clear my head. No, Pat. No. No. Sit down. Listen. If you can't tell me exactly what it is you want, can you at least tell me what it is you don't like? <sighs> no, Matt. No. I can't. It's frankly not that clear to me. Work with me, Pat. Work with me. I promise we can find a way to make this a 10. No. No. No promises, Matt. I don't want a promise from you. I don't want to make a promise to you. The fact is I am not yet ready to commit. <sighs> so what you're telling me is that you just don't want a rogue, do you? I'm sorry, Matt. There's nothing that you can do to change it. But truth be told, I'm just still attracted to a forester. A forester? 
A Subaru Forester? You think a Subaru Forester is a 10 and a Nissan Rogue is just a 7? I'm sorry, Matt. I wish things were different, but I am walking away now. No, Pat, no. Don't walk away. You could be driving away. I can give you a deal guaranteed to delight. I'll have you saying Eureka. No, Matt, no. I can't deal with this anymore. I wish I liked Nissan's better. I really do. But there's too much dashboard. Maybe it's the slant of the rear view window or the door handles. I don't know exactly what it is, Matt. But whatever it is, it's got nothing to do with you. I wish I could buy a car from you. I really do. Because you, Matt, you, compared to all the other car salesmen, you are a 10. <laughs> There was a man. He wasn't the one who sold me my Subaru. <laughs> but the conversation was very much like that. You know, when I was sitting there talking, it was, <laughs> it was a relationship conversation. <laughs> yeah. And man, he did look like Nicolas Cage. And he moved very well. And first up is Drika Overton. She is a tap dancer who uh, wants me to tell you that words are not her medium. <laughs> it's a disclaimer. She lives and works in Kittery, Maine at the Kittery Dance Hall. In fact, she runs the place. Drika is a visionary who has not sidestepped her dreams. Realizing those dreams hasn't been an easy glide, and she's going to tell you something about that in her story. Speak up, young lady. I come from a long line of Henriettas, a great-grandmother, a great-aunt, grandmother, mother, on both sides of my mother's family. Henrietta is the anglicized version of my name, Hendrika, a name that was last used in my family four generations ago by my Dutch great-great-grandmother. My parents named my older sister, beautiful blonde-eyed uh, sister Christina and my younger cute-as-a-button baby sister Gretchen. I was the one to carry the burden of the long-lost, forgotten <laughs> family name into the future, Hendrika. I had been told at a young age that my parents had wanted to name me another family name, Johanna, but that my grandmother insist upon, insisted upon Hendrika. When I was in second grade, I begged my mother to let me change my name to Johanna. She just told me, you should be proud of your name, young lady. Though named, nicknamed uh, Drika, that was no more decipherable to others than Hendrika. Teachers during roll call at the beginning of the school year would invariably hack away at the pronunciation. Hendrika? Hendrinka. <laughs> Hendrika <laughs> and one even added in jest and I'm not kidding can I just call you chicken Drika <laughs> to my horror and the utter amusement of my classmates 
The cruel childhood nicknames for Drika were, were plentiful and thrown like darts, often with velocity, that hurt the shy, skinny, awkward kid that I had become. I was so introverted that I remember once when my teacher in fifth grade called on me to answer a question, I simply put my head down on the desk, imagining that by doing that, I could become invisible. On family car trips, I always sat near the window so I could look out and imagine myself out there, outside the car, moving alongside it, but not in it. I loved horses and horseback riding and remember once watching a horse running through the field, how beautiful it was, <clears throat> how gracefully it galloped through the field on its long legs. I imagined myself being that horse, me galloping alongside the car through the grass, strong, graceful, and free, breathing the fresh air and the fresh outdoors instead of being crammed inside the back seat of this car next to my two perfect sisters. <laughs> my father was stern and overwhelmed with work and family and didn't cotton to my quiet ways. Dinner time was particular, particularly painful for me, as conversation was required. <laughs> While I could bandy about with my sisters, chewing our food and opening our mouths and giggling and laughing about whatever silly things, when it came time for the serious conversations my father would impose, like, what did you learn in school today? I would freeze and my mind would go absolutely blank. As my sisters rattled off details of their day, I panicked and would mumble, nothing. My father would command, speak up, young lady. I would respond, I don't know. That is not an answer, young lady. The tears would start streaming down my face as I lowered my head and I'd be sent to my room. My refuge was Uncle Frank, my father's brother. He was shy and quiet in the middle of three boys. That connected me to him. And the fact that I was in awe of him Somehow he had become successful. He was a movie, television, and Broadway actor. How had he done that, this shy, quiet man from Long Island? Growing up in Southern California, surrounded by the Hollywood business, made me starstruck a lot. I believed that Frank would teach me, show me the way into the business. One sunny afternoon on a visit to my Uncle Frank's house, high up in a canyon in the Hollywood Hills, he said he had a surprise for me and my sisters. He had invited his friend, our idol, Pernell Roberts, for lunch. Oh, my God, Adam from Bonanza? <laughs> and he sat right next to me at the picnic table. I was so frozen with fear and shyness that I could not even look at him, other than to a quick glance to notice that he's bald. How come you're not hurt when the Indians shoot the arrows at you? My cute-as-a-button little sister asked. He explained how the arrow was attached to a wire and directed into a piece of wood under his shirt. He looked at me. I tried to become invisible. Then he said, what's the matter? Cat got your tongue? I could have melted away into the brick patio beneath my feet. In a photo standing next to him from that day, as he knelt down next to me and my cute-as-a-button little sister, I am looking away, withdrawn. One day, Frank brought his beautiful new bride to our house. She was a ballerina, had danced with the Metropolitan Opera Ballet in New York. She began teaching my sisters and me ballet lesson lessons in our small living room. Speaking French, she would describe the steps 
tendu, plié, relevé, and we would follow. I begged my mother for more lessons, and after a time at Miss Janine's ballet school, found power, expressing myself with movement. It was magical. I hit junior high school and tried to fit in as best I could. Though taller than all the boys, wearing braces with headgear and hand-me-down clothes from my older... <laughs> I know. <laughs> really. I'm not kidding. <laughs> hand-me-down clothes from my older, beautiful sister. It was tricky at best. I had always gotten drums as, a, as, a, as toys as a kid, I guess because I was always banging on things around the house with pencils, sticks, forks, whatever I could find. So here I was, ready to dive into that drum class that was listed on the eighth grade class schedule. I really wanted to do it. I still have the vivid memory of opening that classroom door to a room full of boys, boys groaning and laughing at the sight of me, the only girl in the room. I turned and ran out of that door as fast as I could. And if things couldn't get worse for the gawky teenager, my father up and moved us to a small town in Wisconsin. Might as well have been to Siberia as unfamiliar and foreign as that land was. There were no dance schools, glamorous actors, warm sunshine, and even worse, Uncle Frank. It was in the middle of the school year in March. I call the time spent in the Midwest the lost years. I bounced around, going to college, wandering around Europe, working at a bank in Chicago, back to college, before rediscovering my love of movement, of dance. I began taking dance classes at Beloit College where finally get, and finally getting a degree at the University of Wisconsin. A well-known dancer from New York was teaching at Beloit College, and I was so inspired by her that I credit her with changing the course of my life. Her name's Jerry Houlihan. When she returned to New York, I moved to San Francisco and dove into the dance scene, taking daily classes in ballet and modern while waiting tables at night and started to take acting classes. Frank had died suddenly shortly after our move to the Midwest and shortly after his reply to my letter pleading with him that I might come stay with him that summer, to which he replied, sure, we'd love to have you. Now I wanted to see if I could do it on my own. It was good, but my love was dance and it got bigger and bigger. One evening, a friend invited me to a performance at the Zellerbach Theater at Berkeley College University, uh, something called the Jazz Tap Ensemble. It was there sitting in that audience, watching and listening those three dancers and three musicians that I found my bliss in the words of Joseph Campbell. I found a way to be a dancer and a drummer at the same time. I found my voice amazingly, astonishingly. I continue to work with one of those musicians to this day. But that's another story. Thank you. James Ouellette is up next. James is a regular volunteer in this very studio at WSAA. He lives in Epping, New Hampshire, and is an avid theater fan who's written reviews for the internet site examiner.com. Although I haven't read any of James' reviews, I can attest to the fact that he is a very attentive and encouraging audience member because when I've told stories here before, James's big, broad smile lets me know, whoa, this is working. <laughs> Thanks for that, James. 
He will tell us of his journey within the world of adult services for people living with disabilities in his story, Third Times a Charm. Come on up, James. So this story is about my journey within the world of adult services for people with disabilities. And I guess it really begins back in August 2010 when my mother and I first came to Portsmouth for an initial meeting to pick out a vendor for adult services. I was understandably very nervous and had lots of questions just rolling around in my head. What if I didn't like any of the vendors? What could I expect to get out of adult services? And perhaps the most important one, when would I get a job? <laughs> so, the three vendors were interviewed, and we selected one shortly thereafter. Things started off well enough, but soon we realized that choosing the company we did was a huge, and I mean huge, mistake. The people at this company set about finding a few volunteer positions for me at several local nonprofits, which was all fun and well, but I tried explaining to them that um, I didn't really want a volunteer position. I wanted paid employment, but they wouldn't listen. To make matters worse, although they worked very hard, they always stayed for just a brief period of time and then left. This frustrated my family and I so much, and we didn't know where else to turn. And then, by a stroke of fate, my mother and I happened to meet a lady named Emily, while sitting in our local dentist's office. Emily had never been trained as a, in social work, but had spent much of her life taking care of her sister. We asked Emily if she would have any interest in working with me, and she said yes. However, we would have to wait a few more months. In the interim, my father was diagnosed with a grade 4 glioblastoma brain tumor, and life for my family as we knew it spiraled out of control. Once my father had regained as much of his health as he could, we resumed our journey into the wonderful world of a 525 plan, which is basically slang for going out on your own in the world of adult services for disabilities, in case you didn't know. Um, yeah, and I guess it was really enjoyable for me. I made new friends, hung out at the town library, and Emily and I just got along really, really well. But then, in August 2012, I met the woman who was to change my life forever. Emily and I heard about this drama group at Living Innovations, and we decided to attend. The instructor, Jean, and I connected immediately and became very fast friends. Then, by a series of events, in April 2013, I fell very ill and passed that illness on to Emily. After about a month of, of sharing our illness, Emily quit. I was devastated, but as the saying goes, when God closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. Jean stepped in and said that she would work with me. 
So once again, my journey began. In the months since, I've made plenty of new friends and been exposed to plenty of new places. So, for me, I guess the third time is a charm. Thank you, James. I'd like to introduce Jeffrey Stern who's a dentist in Stratum, has lived on the seacoast for 30 years, and he'd like to thank his wife, Dina, who's sitting right beside him, for her encouragement to tell the two stories from his childhood, which he spent in Monesson, Pennsylvania, a steel mill town south of Pittsburgh. Both stories carried the theme of surprise and coincidence. Jeffrey? I have two kind of brief stories that I'm going to tell, as she said, related to my childhood. Um, the first one started, well, it started a long time ago, but I'll start by saying in 1998, my grandmother passed away, uh, my mother's mother, and I flew back from here, back to Pittsburgh, to for the funeral. I stayed a couple of nights with my Uncle Lenny, my father's brother, because uh, he had a great big beautiful apartment and he didn't have anybody living there at the time he was happy to have me so we walked into his apartment and one of the first things I noticed on the wall was a picture of JFK President Kennedy at a podium and it was a nice picture and it was prominent right up there on the wall so I, I said Uncle Lenny where'd you get that cool picture you know and he told me a little <coughs> story he said a, a year or two earlier he was uh, he lived near the University of Pittsburgh he was walking down the street in the summertime, and it was uh, beginning to rain a little bit. There was an arts festival going on. A lot of uh, artists had their wares exhibited on the sidewalk, and since it was starting to rain, uh, some of them were covering up their their work with uh, a plastic mat. So he, one of them was a photographer, so he ducked in under the plastic, and he was standing there looking around. He saw a picture of Kennedy. He always liked Kennedy, uh, Steel Mill Towns, as you can imagine, were pretty democratic strongholds. Uh, and he just bought the picture kind of almost sight unseen. He saw it was Kennedy, but he took it home, put it on his wall, and he said, uh, you know, a day or two later, he took a little better look at it, and he asked me, he says, Jeff, take a look at the buildings behind Kennedy. So I, I looked at it carefully, and by the way, I have this picture in my house now. Uh, and I said, Uncle Lenny, that's, that's Manesson. That's the town that I grew up in and he grew up in as well. And he said, yes. He said, I didn't even realize that for a couple of days until after I put the picture up on the wall. Then he said, look at the window just above Kennedy's head and tell me what you see. So I took a little better look and I said, that looks like Pop-Up. His father, my grandfather. And next to him was my Aunt Ruth, his sister. He said, yes, it took me another couple of days before I examined, you know, the, the, the picture, the photograph in that much detail. And uh, he said, I, I said, that's amazing. You mean you, you just bought this and put it up on the wall and then saw your own father and your sister in that picture? He says, yeah, Kennedy, Kennedy came to Manesson October 13th of 1962, one day before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and he was stumping for Democratic candidates locally and, and for the, the state and the local town. 
And uh, a little a guy named Charles Teeny Harris took this picture. It's actually kind of famous. Um, but I said, Uncle Lenny, that's amazing. You, you you bought this, you put it up, and you know days later you saw your own father and sister. I says, you know what? I took a little better look at the picture. I said, Uncle Lenny, look look at the next window over. And we both looked at it, and I said, look at that little black-haired boy just tall enough to peek over the windowsill. I said, that was me. <laughs> so in about... 30 seconds, we went from, oh, Uncle Lenny, that's a cool picture, to, my goodness, that's me. <laughs> so, I, uh, <laughs> I do remember, I don't remember Kennedy or seeing or hearing Kennedy, although you can go online and hear, actually hear his speech that day. Um, I was kind of too young to be politically active, but I do definitely have a clear picture in my mind of, we were on the second or third floor, looking down at the throngs of people because they closed off all the streets and every street was just jammed with people. And that's that's a memory I have in my mind of looking down and seeing, just being amazed at all the people. They closed off all the streets in our town. Um, but yeah, Kennedy did come to our town and a few other towns and was called back to Washington the very next day to deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, so, so that's my first story. Um, the second story was took place about the same time period. Uh, this same Aunt Ruth that was in the picture uh, had a son who had some special needs, and this would this would have been, I'm going to guess, in the very late 50s or very early 60s. Um, and my uncle Bob, uh, her husband, was in the furniture business, as was most of my family, and uh, he had to go down from Pittsburgh down to North Carolina to a furniture mart they used to call them. Uh, and this was back, remember, in the late 50s. There were no highways. There was no computers. There, you know, So something happened. I don't remember exactly what, but something medically happened with my cousin Johnny, and they had to get in touch with him. And he had just left that morning to drive down from Pittsburgh to North Carolina. So she, my father's sister, and my father got together and tried to figure out how they could reach him. They figured approximately how many miles he would drive in one day, and they took a map out and they figured, they did a lot of figuring, that he would stay around a big city because in those days there weren't that many nice hotels and he probably wouldn't stay in a local dump. I think there were Howard Johnson's and Holiday Inn's and that was about it. So they figured, okay, he's going to drive this far. I think it ended up Richmond, Virginia or something. And he's probably going to stay in a nice hotel and he's probably going to stay on the southern side of that city so he can get up in the morning and drive further south and not hit traffic coming into the city from the north. So they sat down and they just figured and figured and got maps out and, and measured everything. And they said, all right, we're going to call the operator in Richmond, Virginia, and we're going to ask her for all the phone numbers of all the Holiday Inns and all the Howard Johnsons in the whole city and ask her if she knows which ones are on the southern side. Um, this would have been easy today with a computer. Yeah. but But... <laughs> So they did, and they got a list of maybe 20 phone, 20 phone numbers. Uh, they called the very first one, and they said, uh, you know, a woman answered at the front desk, and they said, uh, explain the story. They said, We're, we, it's, it's kind of an emergency. We need to get in touch with a, a Mr. Robert Schrag. We're not even sure if, if he's staying at your hotel, but could you please check the guest register? Because, you know, in those days, you signed in on a piece of paper. And she said, okay, sure, I'll I'll." You know, just hang on one second. She put the phone down. She went over to the guest register and came back and said, uh, oh, I'm really sorry, but uh, we don't have anybody by that name here. And my father and my aunt said, okay, well, 
thank you very much for checking and, and uh, you know, have a good day. And she was just ready to hang up and she said, wait, wait, sir, are you on the phone? Just as she was saying this, my uncle walked in and was signing the guest register. <laughs> so through a lot of ingenuity and a lot of, a lot of you know, thinking and figuring and calculating and, and just plain luck. Uh, they got hold of him right away. It's probably, I hope, something that kids today would be able to figure out on their own, but they'd probably just go to a computer. And, well, they'd just call him on a cell phone. You know, so. Those are my stories of coincidence. <laughs> Thank you. We're going to um, end, I guess, with Bob Halperin. Right, eh, Bob? Um, who is proud to be on the board of trustees for WSCA. He has spent half of his life so far (laughs) in Portsmouth. He has spent most of his life playing the guitar. Oh, you must have been a beautiful baby. Strumming then. (laughs) (laughs) Guitar strings. Bob has played solo with duo partners and with various bands, including the now semi-mythical Homeless Bob and the Living Room Gypsies. His, His tale tonight is titled, My Bar Mitzvah. Yes. Uh, well, hi everybody. Hi. Uh, yeah. Well, let's let's start by defining our terms a little bit. Um, a bar mitzvah for those of you who uh, did not happen to grow up Jewish uh, is is a rite of passage for for young Jewish men. It's available to them starting at the age of thirteen, and it kind of admits them into the society of Jewish. Civil civil society, shall we say? Uh, it allows them to be decision makers and all that. Uh, and le- usually at thirteen, that's when it's going to happen. Well, I grew up in suburban New York uh, in a home that was not particularly religious, Jew- but Jewish, uh, and we were not affiliated with any temple or synagogue. Uh, so when I was around 12, my, my father came to me and he said, look, we could send you to Hebrew school and you could cram for this thing and we could give you a bar mitzvah or we could just give you a big 13th birthday party. And I, I said, well, you know, despite my, my uncle, by the way, had, had gone bankrupt on my cousin's bar mitzvah. (laughs) Uh, my cousin made out like a bandit, however. Um, <laughs> uh, you get big gifts at your bar mitzvah, and not so much at a 13th birthday party. However, I decided that since I really had not grown up believing in the faith and not grown up learning Hebrew, uh, I, I would go for the 13th birthday party and just leave it at that. So we did that. Okay, flash forward about six years. I'm 19 years old, living in Connecticut. I'm in New York City one day for other things. It's a hot, sweaty day in in New York. And uh, I go to meet uh, my father for for dinner. Never one to pass up on a free meal. Uh, So I'm, I'm to meet him at his office, which is on West 57th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues. And... I'm walking up the street, and a fella approaches me. This fella has a uh, 
a big flat hat on and has a frock coat and has curly what what are called pais coming from his from his temples it's uh long long un, unshorn locks uh he's obvious and a, and a beard uh he's obviously a, a hasidic jew uh a more more strongly religious sect and you know, I he walks up to me and he says, "Are you Jewish?" I saw no reason to lie to this guy. I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, have you said your prayers today?" And I said, "Uh, no." And he said, "Well, come on, let's get let's get that taken care of." So he takes me by the arm and pulls me towards this camper that's. But RV that's parked alongside of West 57th Street uh, that I hadn't noticed before. It says Lubavitch Mitzvah Mobile, <laughs> and kind of yanks me in the door, and uh, I'm kind of disoriented. My head's spinning a little bit, and I'm kind of wondering what's going to happen next. <laughs> and, and he said, "Okay, let's say our prayers," and he starts. Going, and I'm I'm staring at him. He looks at me. I'm just staring at him with my mouth open. Don't know the words. And uh, he looks at me kind of funny, and he says, uh, "Are you bar mitzvah?" And I said, "Well, no." He said, "Okay, let's take care of that." (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So. Outcome, uh, it's hard to describe these paraphernalia, these phylacteries are called. Uh, They're aids to to Jewish prayer, and they're they're leather straps with leather boxes attached, and and you strap them around your your wrists in a special ritual way, which I still don't know. Um, But anyhow, he, he, he says, okay, repeat after me. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of going along with it. Um, about 15 minutes later, with my head spinning and a a menorah in one hand and and a a collection box for Jewish charities in the other, I'm I'm set back out on West 57th Street. <laughs> Wondering what just happened to me. <laughs> so I, I I continue the walk up to uh, to my father's office. Take the take the elevator up. Uh, he's ready to take me out for a sandwich. And I said, "Hey, Dad, guess what? <laughs> Thank you." <laughs> so take this tip from experience, me.